Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Preparis. Instead of my normal co-host, I have my other co-host joining me this week, Mr. Miles Keller. Welcome to the show. What's up, Evan? I love it. Dude, I love being on this. You and me just get to <laughs> dork out on OCR and talk everything about OCR, but tonight we kind of have a different uh, twist on things. Yeah. I, I, I love to try this new approach. So, so I actually had my dad comment that he he really enjoys our banter. Um, he listens to the podcast, so he gave you a shout out um, when I was talking to him over the weekend. So, good what an job. awesome dad! <laughs> Holy crap! You talk about support. I mean, my parents love me too, but there's no way in the world they listen to any of my podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. He he likes to he likes to stay update on um, what I'm putting out for the OCR world. So. It, Gives us some good topics to talk about whenever we we meet up again. So it's you know fun. what? Hey, can you? People are products of their environment, and you know I've said on on the the one of the last podcasts that I got my idea for the name for my firstborn son from you because all the Evans and you especially are such a solid guy. I've you know, I, if you're a product of your environment, what was your dad like? Like how did he raise? What was it? What was he like raising you? Not to get into my life story here, but I mean, he's great. He's always been there for me. Um, I was heavily involved in Boy Scouts growing up, and he was a Boy Scout leader. So we got to spend, like every camping trip we'd go on, he'd typically be there, and we'd go camping like once a month. So I spent a lot of time with him growing up, and you know, we used to go to the gym together when I was a little bit older, and we still go to the gym together when I'm back in New York. So I don't know. We get along great. He's The two of us are like clones of each other. Um, yeah. So he got you in the lifting. Yeah, I mean, uh, like he doesn't lift the way I lift, but he, you know, he, he would go to the gym, and he's still he's still pretty fit. He's like seventy, so um, I think if you were if you watched some of my Facebook stuff from last year's World's Toughest Mudder, like at one point he was carrying me through the hotel because I couldn't walk. Like after the race was over, like he was piggyback, yeah. give me a piggyback ride. So that's awesome, man. That's love. All right, well, dad, hashtag dad goals. <laughs> All right, well, let's introduce our, our actual guest for the show. Um, we have on the line uh, Wesley Kerr, my teammate from World's Toughest Mudder this year. He was part of, he was with my, the two of us were part of Team Merrill. Um, this was his fifth World's Toughest Mudder. Um, in the last, since moving to Vegas, he's placed in the top 17 at every one. So very consistent. Uh, 17th was his lowest placement. Eighth, I'm sorry, seventh was his highest placement up until this year. Um, he's placed 11th in two of the toughest mutters, the eight-hour ones that we did this year. He's a two-time Sisu Ironman endurance event finisher, so that's a 40-hour endurance event, kind of like a Gogi. He's done five Hurricane Heat 12 hours, and he won a BFX when they were still around. In his first 100-mile, he finished fourth overall. So, uh, Wesley, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Some of you, yeah. Some of you in the OCR or in the world's toughest community or the Tough Mudder community will know him as Doctor Red Tights. 
due to his uh, marina sport tights that he always wears. I got I got a question for him. After hearing your history, Wes, why do you like suffering so much? <laughs> I think suffering makes me stronger. Um, I I sort of suffer in my other non-OCR life too, so I just do things for very long periods of time, and I enjoy doing things that are hard. Yeah, yeah, like the endurance stuff, the tougher, the toughest, all that stuff. Great, uh, world's toughest is right up your alley. I can see why the bulk of your, uh, the bulk of your races you focus on is uh, the longer stuff, man. You couldn't have teamed up with a better guy either. I know that's Evan's bread and butter is the long distance, even though he does really good at the CTG four-mile races. Uh, his bread and butter by far is the eight-hour-plus eight events. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, let, me, let me ask you guys this. As someone who's uh, – I've personally never done a Tough Mudder. You know, this year is the first year they really start bringing out the competitive waves, so they kind of sparked my interest, and I want to start jumping in even though – I'm a short course guy, so they don't really have any short competitive races. It's a bit of a turnoff for me personally, but I also like the 24-hour, I uh, like a 24-hour team relay, like you and me did earlier in the year, Evan, with our teammates. That was a very doable format and really enjoyable, because uh, really, you know, you push yourself a little further knowing that you have teammates depending on you. But to get to world's toughest mutter. Let me ask you this: What do you have to do? I'll I'll direct this towards uh, I'll direct this towards West. West, what do you have to do to qualify for World's Toughest Mudder? Um, I like to say you have to be crazy enough to think it's fun. Because uh, technically, all you have to do is sign up and you can compete in the open division. Um, it used to be like way back when when I started doing this, you need to be top five percent of a uh, tough mudder. No, uh, no such qualifier. Um, now what you qualify for is pit placement and check-in. So if you do 25 miles at a toughest mutter, which is an eight-hour event that starts at midnight, then you're called a contender. And if you place top five in one of those events, then you're called an elite contender. And elite contenders check in before contenders, and contenders check in before open. But once we start the course, everyone is all on the same playing field. Does that also mean when they stagger the start lines, Evan, do, uh, do, is there different waves? Is there an elite wave goes off first, uh, and then the open, the open wave goes last, team, team relays go second, something like that? How do they stagger those start lines? Yeah, so there's no staggered start, but there is, uh, pit sep- or there is a lineup separation. So they put the elites up front, the team, the national relay was right behind them, then it was all the contenders, then the open. So when they say go, I mean, a couple seconds later, they're all starting to merge into each other. So, I mean, we started, you know, me and me and Wesley finished in the top 10 last year, but that doesn't qualify us as elite contenders because we didn't finish in the top five of the eight-hour toughest. So we were actually in the contender category, uh, which meant we were, I don't know, you know, 15 feet back from the start line because we were all the way at the front of the contender category. And, you know, within 200 yards of the gun going off, you know, we were – Right there in the mix with everyone. So, this has got to be even harder, I would imagine, to to get into the elite wave for this now. I mean, Tough Mudder has has taken on um, is offering the most amount of money in OCR right now, right? And henceforth, this has dragged on a whole bunch of the best in the sport. You got guys like Killian and Atkins and Ryan Woods and the best in the best. <laughs> so if you're expected to 
uh, place in the top five, that is a tall order when it's attracting the best of the best from all OCR. I mean, you know, Spark Pro Team members, you look at Rhea Coble on the female side, won this year. Uh, I'd imagine to become it's going to become exponentially more difficult to qualify for the elite category for world's toughest mutter, right? Yeah. What's, what's yeah. interesting is Rhea Coble actually was a contender because she, you can apply for contender status, but she didn't run any of the toughest, so she was not qualified for elite contender status. Um, and what's interesting is both Evan and I, we were 7th and 8th individual last year, but both of us didn't reach elite contender, which says that there is a bunch of people that were ahead of us in the eight hour, but dropped below us when you hit the 24. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. So would you say then, Evan, would you say there's some more room to tweak how qualifications and uh, the differences between the elite and contender and open waves are kind of determined? Yeah, ab absolutely. So, you know, I said it before when they announced this initially. Um, Eight-hour racing is different from 24. You know, there's just there's definitely a high correlation. I'm not going to argue with that because they're both ultra endurance events. But I think we saw some of the people who did very very well at the eight-hour just show up to the 24 and you know bomb or you know quit mid-race. So I understand what Tough Mudder's doing. They want they're trying to draw more people out to the eight hour race, right? So, you know, if they, like what they should do, in my opinion, again, is, you know, just like you can qualify for the Boston Marathon last year at the Boston Marathon, you know, if you finished in the top 10 or 20 of world's toughest, you should automatically be elite contender next year, um, in my opinion. But, you know, what they want to do is they want you to force people to show up to the eight hour to get that qualification. Um, yeah, it's a business too. I mean, yeah. Wes, how do you feel about it? Do you about the qualifications? Um, I think they make a big deal out of it, and then it doesn't really matter in the end. That is true. Uh, I I do agree that I think what their goal is to identify a small group of people that they can follow through the season, and have a high probability that they're going to people be the people you can cover on TV with CBS. Um. And, like, the top three on either side, other than Rhea Coble, were elite contenders. Um, and the top teams were also mostly elite contenders. So I think they succeeded in that goal. In terms of, like, actually trying to predict who's going to be the top stack, like the top ten, I think that's super hard to do. So I would, if I was king of the world, I would make, like, top ten at toughest be um, elite contender, because I think that's a more accurate resemblance of what's actually going to be who the top contenders. But if I understand that right, what you said then is that Rhea Coble had hadn't run any tough tough mutters this entire year up the world's toughest. She, I think she had ran tougher, um, which is the competitive tough mutter, but she had not run a toughest ten mile. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So that and that's not a quality. Okay, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying now. Why that doesn't necessarily make a difference that's actually even more impressive on her part to take away the win like that it's pretty impressive and one of the so, things as far as i'm tracking one of the things they're changing for next year is contender status is supposed to be 30 miles so they're making that harder to get into and last time i heard again tough mutter may tweak this before the start of the 2018 season but 
I heard Elite Contender was going to be top three only, which is making mm-hmm. it even smaller. Um, if which, you know, for facilitating check-in, I, I don't. I mean, I guess maybe that's not their main concern, right? Because they had like twenty people checked in in the first hour, six hundred in hour two, and then like you know nine hundred in the last hour in the third hour. Um, whereas I think you should try to balance that out a little more, but you know. Yeah. I think their goal is not check-in. I right. Think their goal... Yeah, I, I agree. The So it, one of the other things that when I look at how they have set up their their system in order to get to this the, the kind of the championship, world's toughest mutter, uh, a lot of people say, you know, you got to go do the toughest mutter, which is the eight hour from 12 at midnight onwards, right, for eight hours. It's only in certain cities. There's only is there like seven or eight of them? Correct me if I'm wrong. There's gonna so, be yeah. Go for it, Wes. Um, so how Tough Mudders work in this year is they had a concept called the Holy Grail, where you run one competitive Tough Mudder, which is any weekend anywhere. The first wave on Saturday is now competitive, um, and then you run a toughest, which is actually called a regional Tough Mudder. So it's a essentially regional championship. And there were six this year, um, four in the U.S., one in Whistler, Canada, and one in the U.K., I believe. Um, and those, theoretically, were like regional qualifiers to uh, World's Toughest. Um, and something they're changing this year is they're bringing a regional Tough Mudder, uh, uh, the eight-hour version to Australia, because that's a big region that uh, was not covered last year. Um, and they're doing a lot more U.K. and Europe events. I think... Germany gets its own toughest mutter now. That's pretty cool, but it's going. It, it, it's also a kind of a tall order. You got to be all about tough mutter to be able to. You're gonna have to travel to to one of those qualifying those tougher the toughest. Excuse me. The way <laughs> the way they have the names set up. I'm trying to be very careful with my words because I can easily confuse tough, tougher, toughest, world's toughest mutter. There is a difference, people. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know the difference, hey, don't sweat it. Neither do I. <laughs> it's very <laughs> confusing. I've I, I looked it up before this and I've seen the different tiers. I just wish they did the terminology different so it's a little more user friendly to people that haven't come in. But then again, you know, I understand. Uh, it's exactly like Spartan Race. Tough Mudder has a huge, dedicated following that do nothing but this, and they follow Tough Mudder all around the country, and they just do Tough Mudder. They try to get that Legionnaire band, just like people follow Spartan, and get this ridiculous amount of number of trifectas. I don't even know how people afford this. Good on them for the dedication. I love that dedication from the bottom of my heart. I Mm -hmm. wish I could fly around and do that. But I have kids and a job, and I have no idea how people do that. Yeah, I've seen a 14 trifecta before. Oh, oh no! I got a buddy. He uh, trains with Bracken Crocker on the leaderboard. Oh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name right now. He's got he's got 18 trifectas. Oh my this goodness! This year, he's yeah. probably he's probably platinum elite on whatever his frequent flyer is too. He has a he has a medal, a trifecta medal that no joke is larger than Flavor Flav's clock. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's amazing. Which good on him. You get 18 trifectas in one year, you should have Joe DeSena come in your house and massage your feet. Okay? That's a, 
That's a lot of money. I'm just saying. Yeah. I wonder what you do the next year. You know, like you can't, you can't go more. You can't get more the next year. I mean, I guess you could, but like, I don't know. They do. They do though. That's yeah, a crazy. I, yeah, that's a crazy thing, man. They do. I know Mr. Forney. He travels all around, does them all too. He's incredible. Yeah. So it, um, it, before I derail, I'm derailing the podcast. I'm sorry. I do this with my my mean case of ADHD. Let me get back on track, and I want to ask you guys about the controversy <clears throat> with the wealth distribution. Uh, supposedly, there was the money for the team relay in which you guys competed uh, was the winning money was redistributed as the terminology I believe they use, which uh, when you talk about wealth uh, redistribution, I just want to ask you, Evan, why is Tough Mudder a communist of business? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just so, joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> so what was kind of funny about that was, you know, like we're like a month out and they're like, all right, you know, there's not a lot of interest in the team category, which was also very unclear as how we sign up to be a team. Um, so I think a lot of teams hadn't announced. And so they decided they're going to redistribute the money, they take away all the prize money from the two-plus team and put it into the national relay category. So well, the where, where did it go, do you know? It went to uh, the national... Yeah, go for it, Wesley. So initially there's, there's four divisions this year in Worlds. The men, the women the two-plus team that stay together at all times, and the relays, which are technically national relay teams. They said that less than 1% of people were signed up for the, the two-plus person, so they gave the money to the national relay. Um, looking at the actual money that was given, the national relay didn't actually change at all. Um, it seems like they put the money that was in the two-plus person into their new tougher championship, which they had... Um, sort of last minute at the same, same time they announced this, they announced the Tougher Championship. Um, so they had three Tough Mudder, Tougher Mudders, which are the 10 mile, that were like regional championships. And then the week before World's Toughest, they had the World's Tougher Championship. Oh, this is getting confusing. <laughs> yes. Oh, hey, everyone at home, get your pen and paper. Oh, you have to rewind this about 30 seconds. Make a Make a diagram like a crazy person on a wall with strings attached to different pictures. <laughs> yeah, so the week before in SoCal, they paid um, two winners $10,000 for winning the 10-mile version. Okay. Um, you guys did the team relay, correct? You guys did the... Is that is that two people out at the course at all time, or is that one person at a time? We did two, the team. Team, yeah. So two people on the course running. We have to be within 30 seconds of each other, running side-by-side side the entire race. So we both did... Well, 24 hours. I like to call it the couples competition because it used to be a four-man team, and they dropped it to two uh, two years ago. Mm-hmm. But um, that's interesting. So what, they didn't have a they didn't have one where it was one guy out on the course at a time. They did not. Um, their relay version was a four-man team, where four or more, where at least half of your team had to be out at a time. So, two guys out at a time. Yeah. So and it's some serious mileage that way. So a lot of mileage. Um, the team relay is one with 120 miles. Yep. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was incredible. You know, Evan, why do you think you have a good you have a good insight uh, into OCR and you got your ear to the ground, man? In your opinion, 
why do you think there wasn't more interest in the team's race? For, in my opinion personally, real quick before you give your opinion, I would imagine as someone outside of uh, Tough Mudder looking in, I look at the teams, and the, the, the only team that beat you guys was a Glenn Race, Chad Trammell, uh, Brian Gawiski, and, and Mr. Jones, Mark Jones, right? Like, these are all phenomenal ultra elite athletes. That's a super strong team to have to try and beat. And then you look at you and Wesley Kerr. You guys are really experienced in the long stuff, phenomenal athletes yourself. It's a little intimidating to go up against those guys if you're going to try and pick a shot. So do you think it may be that way? Why do you think uh, there is less interest in it? Less interest in the team relay or the team? Both. So here, well, here's, here's what's kind of funny. They said there wasn't a big interest in the team, and then when we lined up on the starting line, they're like, we have 46 teams in the team category. This is the largest number of teams ever. And it was like, that's weird. That's not what we were being told earlier. Um, and then for the national relay, there was 16 teams. I'm not sure why they moved the prize money. Maybe at the time there wasn't that many teams signed up. Maybe they were trying to drive more of us into the individual or national relay because the, the national relay is um, new, so they're trying to drum up interest. And maybe they just wanted more of us in the individual because... I know CBS is focusing primarily on the individual, so maybe they wanted all the top names in there. I'm not sure. I'm kind of guessing at that point. What What about you, Wes? How do you? What's your uh, take on it? Um, I think I think they wanted to drum up uh, enthusiasticness about the national relay, um, even though they think like last year they were all about the two person team. That's where the big money was. Um, that's sort of like exactly what Tough Mudder is of teamwork throughout the entire 24. But since they had the National Relay, they want to say more about that. What's interesting is the the first place National Relay was a National Relay team before that. The second place National Relay um, was Austin Azar, Chris Mendoza, um, Mark Jones, and Miguel Medina. They actually were two different two-person teams before that announcement was made. So they joined together to make Team North America because Austin is Canadian. So they couldn't be Team USA. Um, and that was the major impact that this all money switching happened. They ended and up coming up with a pretty creative team name. Do you hear they changed it to Team USA? Because <laughs> he's Canadian, get it? Yeah. Hey. <laughs> I thought that was great, so, man. So when they took away the prize money, you know... You know, me and Wesley start talking, and we're like, well, you know, there's no prize money. Do we want to stay in the two-man team, or do we want to leave and do individual, or, you know, maybe go to relay, whatever, you know, discussing our options. And kind of at the end of the day, you know, this ultra OCR, World Toughest Mudder, you know, has never been about the money. And the, you know, just because there's no prize money doesn't mean we're not going to go out there and absolutely crush ourselves to get one more lap. So at the end of the day, it... You know, it, it doesn't matter to us. The possibility of being on the podium is worth more than they can possibly pay me. So we ended up staying in the team. It worked to our advantage because, like Wesley said, those two two-man teams who we would have had to chase down, um, I'm not saying we definitely could have beat them or definitely would have lost, but if they were having a, if both of those teams were having a good day, they would have beaten us. Um, me and Wesley, they, our, our biggest benefit 
to World's Toughest Mudder is the two of us are very, very consistent. Like I said in Wesley's intro, his lowest placement is 17th, mine's 22nd, and his highest placement is 7th, mine is 8th. So we're like, you know, for the last three years, we've been in the top, you know, 22, right, real close to each other for the last um, three years in an event that's so long and so many things can go wrong. I mean, you look at the field this year and you saw people, you know, Morgan Morgan McKay got knocked out. She was unconscious. She had to be pulled from the course. Uh, Adrian Alverd fell off, I think, stage, stage five clinger, uh, yep. hit her head. And I'm not sure. I, I think she may have stopped mid-race. I'm not sure. Or she may have finished. But, I mean, she, she was not doing She woke doing up well. in the medical tent. She woke up in the medical tent. She gets, she, it knocked her out. Adrian uh, or? Morgan McKay got knocked out and woke up in the medical tent. Uh, Adrian finished a lap with a clear concussion. And then medical DQ'd herself. Yeah. And then, you know, then there's all sorts of stomach problems. You know, people go in and they have nutritional issues and they're, they've got diarrhea or whatever, and they drop out mid. So when me and Wesley decided to team up, you know, this is my A race. This is the biggest event of the year for me, hands down. I put all my training and focus on this specific event. So when Wesley asked me to team up, normally if, if he was a guy who was, you know, top five one year and 50th the next year, I would have said no, but because he's always up there and always consistent, I said yes, and we thought a lot of the individuals were going to the individual category, so we saw it as an open opportunity and decided to team up, and it was Wesley's idea, so mad props to him. Well, this is, this is a perfect segue, and we'll get more into complications uh, later on into the, what, what happened during the race. Let me ask you guys about the start of the race. What was your strategy? How did your pacing end up? end up going out and i'd imagine i know from racing with you before evan i know you start like the start running splits in the middle of the night and i bet you did the same thing but take me through the beginning of the race um uh, let me let me point the direction towards evan first and then let me ask uh wes how he feel felt during the beginning actually let's wes why don't you why don't you take this one i just ran my mouth for a while cool um in the tough letter community i'm actually known as the pacing guy um, my specialty is running the same lap time the entire time. Um, oh, wow. So, but our plan was we didn't really know what was going to go on and how things were going to work. Um, so we were like, we're going to run comfortably and a pace that both of us are experienced enough to know that we can keep this pace for 24 hours um, as compared to running a numerical time. Uh, so... We just got out there and put down what felt like um, we were aiming for like eight-minute miles-ish. And then we wanted to keep that for however long we wanted to keep that. And there were a lot of people, especially in the first mile or two, that just went like a bat out of hell. Um, and we just saw them go and we're like, that's fine. We have 24 hours. Um, and then we actually ended up winning the green bib which is the fastest first lap bib of the two person teams because we just kept out that nice consistent eight-ish minute mile pace throughout the whole thing and then kept on trucking it, let me ask you this uh you guys weren't watching the live feed but i watched the li the live feed for a lot of the race there was one guy who got a, like a 5 30 five minute pace was just flying ahead of everyone and uh, the commentary was great on the live feed. I believe it was uh, it was it was E Rock, the one that was doing the other commentary, and they were they were joking like, "Oh, this gentleman is gonna blow up." 
This is a bad strategy, but he is absolutely killing the course right now. <laughs> who, who was that guy? What happened, man? I don't know who it was. Um, typically, I, I've said this before on uh, Overcome and Run podcast. Typically, the guy that the guy and girl that win the green bib blow up, and they blow up hard, and we ne- you never hear from them again. There are exceptions to the rule. Uh, Ray Coble won the green bib this year and won overall, which is insane. That uh, has never my- yeah, it never happened before. Uh, Wesley, who we're talking to right now, has won the green bib and got 75 miles. Am I correct? That is correct. Yeah, which, again, is by far the exception and definitely not the rule. Wesley, it's... How, how fast were you going to win the green bib by doing the first lap? By the way, we're talking in terminology other people might not understand. That green bib is, is earned during the very first lap of the race where all the obstacles are closed. They call it the sprint lap. Am I correct? That is correct. Um, I won that my year, which was 2015. Um, and I want to say a little bit faster than a seven-minute mile. Um, that is including elevation change. Wow, nice. How much elevation gain is there out there on that course? I mean, it's going to go to Atlanta next year, not that it matters, but at a, for grins and giggles. It's about 840 feet. Per plus lap. or minus, yeah, plus or minus twenty feet. Wow! How much a gain did you guys make over the series of the race? We did eighty miles, so whatever um, sixteen times eight hundred forty is. Anyone want to bust out their calculators? I'm not that fast. I got a calculator right here. Thirteen thousand. Sixteen times what? Uh, it's thirteen thousand. Wow! Thirteen thousand feet of gain is crazy. That is uh, what that's equivalent of Mount Everest a couple times, right? Now Mount Everest is like thirty thousand. Oh, is it thirty thousand? Okay. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I know <laughs> that because OCR America, I did thirty-one thousand feet of elevation, which was higher than Mount Everest. So. Oh wow. Okay. So how did your guys' strategy work out? So uh, take take me through it. You kept that nice even pace the whole time, and you're happy with uh, however the, your performance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were we were crushing it. We moved into first probably about halfway through the first lap, and we ended up holding on to first for the first 52 miles. And um, we're just, just kind of cruising. We were staying within ourselves. Um, yeah, they, they had a weird obstacle opening time. Like, I think because there was so many people, there was 1,600, that they didn't – normally they open all the obstacles right at an hour – uh, this time they kind of phased it, so the obstacles that had a large throughput, like low crawls, um, stayed or opened almost, you know, at the hour mark. But some of the more complicated ones, like Funky Monkey or like the rig type obstacles, ended up not opening for like a couple of hours. So we really, we really got in some really good mileage. I think we hit 50 miles at like 10 and a half hours or something, something ridiculous. Yeah. Oh wow. So. Uh, the final obstacles opened at 4 p.m., and at 4 p.m., we had already done about 20 miles. Oh, wow. Nice. Okay, so it's super important to kind of get out there. You don't want to blow up, but you want to get as much mileage in that first bit of time before the obstacles open, right? As a yeah. general yeah, rule of thumb. Yeah, you want to stay in your aerobic pace. So, you know, some of the faster guys can go out a little bit harder. Uh, that doesn't mean you should follow them, um, you know. You gotcha. want to stay aerobic. You don't want to. You don't want that like 10k ro- road race pace or like the pace you're running a you know, whatever a Spartan sprint or whatever the whatever course 
whatever you know eight mile or lower course that you're doing. So everybody knows that the problems start occurring when nighttime hits. Around midnight onwards, it's dark. It, it what was the temperature when you guys started, uh, Wes? So it started around 75 or something, which is not that bad. And then in, when the sun went down, it was probably maybe 65, 75. Um, and the usual strategy with the world's toughest is that when the sun goes down, it gets wet and it gets cold. And once you're cold, you're done. Um, we sort of took a different strategy because um, most people put on their wetsuits at that point. Um, what we did is we said... There's not that much water yet before midnight, so what we're going to do is take off as much clothing as possible, because being dry is being warm, and if you don't have clothing on, your skin dries super fast. Um, so between like 5 p.m. and 10.30, we were running in just our bottoms um, with our bib on on top. Uh, nice. And Everyone was like, we were running by people, and they're like, how, how are you alive? Um, like, well, six, I mean, 65, you said, you know, it, it, when it got dark out, you're looking at, say, 65 degrees, 60 degrees? Yeah. yeah. That's not it too bad. At, at 10 o'clock, it was like, it, it dropped below 60 by 10 o'clock. So it, okay. it was low 60s. Once um, it gets below this, 60, you're talking starting to get cold. What about the water? Yeah. How cold would you say the water was from the ambient temperature? Know. Uh, was water cold. was 54 was the last measure. It was measured. cold. Yeah. It was cold. Okay. And then the only time you're really spending any time in the water is if, when you jump off the cliff, the other, other than if you were to fail an obstacle, correct? That is incorrect. Oh, um, I'm sorry. They have that obstacle where it's uh, the water's pouring down the um, the chutes, right? Yeah. So Tough Mudder's big thing at Worlds is they like to make it hard. And a lot of how they make it hard is they get you wet all the time. So if you had penalties, you would often get in the water. Um, there's also a couple obstacles that were open the whole time called Snot Rocket and Block Ness. Snot Rocket is where you climb up a tube and they pour water down on you. Um, and Block Ness is you flip over some blocks, but you're doing so when you're completely submerged in water. Um, there's also Shawshanked, which is like, you crawl through through some stuff, then you go through a tube, and on the other side of the tube, you need to drop into water. Um, sometimes, if you're super flexible and super small like Evan, you might be able to avoid getting your head wet on Shawshanks, but otherwise, you're just getting full submerged. Gotcha. And is, it, is any of that ice water? Not at Worlds. No, it feels, it feels like it's ice water, but it's not. It's just ambient temperature uh, water. Okay. So that... That shirtless technique is one I used. I used for toughest Philly. I used for all the toughest. I mean, I, I typically run shirtless, and like Wes said, your skin dries, so you can stay dry. Um, the problem with that, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're, you're going to go do a toughest and you're not running the whole time, like, you will get cold, right? Like, the, you know, me and Wes can do that, and, and a lot of the other guys can do that because we're generating our, most of our own body heat from running. So if we were walking and trying the same strategy, it would fail miserably, and you would freeze. So um, that's pretty much it. You get you get wet at the obstacle, you get out, and you immediately start running again. And uh, there's nothing that makes you want to run faster than you know 
being cold and realized like if I stop running, I'll I'll probably get hypothermia. So okay. it's I like I to call it. Say, hi- thank God. I was gonna say thank God we're guys and we can. It's easy for us. The most of the races we get to run without our shirt. But the way I understand it is that there was a woman who had the same idea. Can you, Evan? Can you please tell us about that? That is an amazing story. Yeah. So after the race, my wife my wife told me about it, and then at the face at the uh, World Service Motor Community, someone posted a comment, and they're like, "Was I hallucinating, or was there a topless woman?" So apparently, some girl I'm not sure her name was running topless, but I guess she she put like KT tape or some kind of tape over her, um, you know, nipples, and then painted the World's Toughest Mudder logo on each one. So she was straight up topless with like tape over her boobs and uh she was cruising it out so I, i'm impressed yeah she did three laps like that three there you oh go my God. that'd be that'd be hard i mean we're dudes right we have no idea what that feels like but i'd imagine any kind of weight in front of your chest ahead of your center of mass bouncing up and down would get old after a couple of miles right that'd be really hard I, you know, that's why women wear the compression uh, bras right yeah, I mean, I obviously have no idea, but it. Uh, I mean, I, I know sports bras were created for a reason, right? So, yeah, I assume, yeah, yeah. I assume you know, they're you useful. What's interesting too is I, I've, <laughs> dear Lord, don't get. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. This is it. <laughs> I put my foot in my mouth. I've always wondered if you look at the elite females, uh, the top in the sport, n- none of them have like huge chests, right? And you wonder if there's some sort of correlation into that. Is it is it is it more difficult for women with larger chests to be competitive in OCR because you have to run? You know, I, I, I think it's just a body mass thing. Of your your breasts are mostly fat, yeah. so when you get super thin, your breasts shrink in size, and then you put them in a compression top. So I've seen some ladies that are top competitors that when you see them outside of their compression gear, they they have some boobs. Um, but once they're in the compression gear, it's all strapped down. It's okay. a good conversation. I like where this is heading. Yeah, yeah. I like- <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, Evan, you and me got – you and me like benching a whole bunch. So, you know, we got boobs. We got pretty yeah, – Well, I, I ripped one of my pecs earlier this year, so one of my pecs is not looking so good anymore. Oh, but. snap. So I win the I win the man-boob competition. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. There's like a visible <laughs> indent on my one of my pecs now. So. <laughs> Love it. Oh, let's talk about the new obstacles, man. From what I understand, is that they normally premiere the following year's obstacles at the previous year's uh, world's toughest mutter. So, say you guys got the tryout 2018's tough mutter obstacles at this year 2017's world's toughest mutter. Can you uh, let me direct the first question towards Wesley? Can you take us through one of those obstacles, and then let's go to Evan and hear about the other. So I would say the most exciting new obstacle is called Kong Infinity. Um, what Kong usually is, is you get up on like a 10-foot or 20-foot platform and you swing across five rings. Kong Infinity is you get up on a platform that's not as high, and then there's essentially a cylinder that's on top of a ladder, and that cylinder has rings that come down, and you have to grab those rings, and as you grab those rings, the cylinder rotates. And you have to grab subsequent rings to make the cylinder rotate all the way until you hit um, a final ladder where you dismount from that rotating cylinder onto a final ladder and you make it onto the, the platform on the farther end. And how did that how did that turn out? Did you guys have any 
Um, I, I don't know you personally like I know Evan Wesley, but, uh, you know, he's a Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team member, and a lot of those guys tend to be fantastic with grip and upper body intensive obstacles. Did either of you guys have any problems with that particular one? Um, I am known for my obsessive power walking and crazy running. Um, I'm usually quite strong on the obstacles, but not as much as Evan or the Conquer the Gauntlet people. So once my hands started getting super puffy, my grip started going, and I started having problems with Kong Infinity. Um, but I think up until, like, 2 a.m., um, we got it every time. So as long as your hands are sort of a normal human size, um, it's totally doable. <laughs> wow, nice. Okay, interesting. Hey, what about Evan, how did your grip uh, work out through that obstacle over 24 hours? I was good. The thing that makes the team interesting is... You know, you have to stay together. So if one of us fails an obstacle, you know, we both fail, regardless if one of us completes it or not, right? It's it's all or nothing. Now, when me and Wesley teamed up, I knew he was a better runner, and he knew I was better at obstacles. And the, the hope was that with ha him pacing me, I'd be able to push myself a little harder and keep up. And then with me, like him knowing that I'm always going to complete the obstacle, you know, it would push him a little harder. You know, he'd be able to summon a little more strength and make it across. And I would say our plan worked perfectly for about 60 miles. You know, we were, you know, Wesley was pacing me and I was uh, behind him, but, you know, trying to keep up and staying pretty close. And he was c completing all the obstacles. And then from mile 60 to mile 80, I would say our differences really started showing. So, you know, we'd get on the run sections and he would he would burn me down. I would try to I would try my best to keep up and I, I just couldn't. So he'd end up getting the obstacle first and waiting for me. Um, and then he'd have trouble on basically the the very upper body intensive one. So Kong Infinity, um, Funky Monkey Revolution, which is essentially ascending set of monkey bars into th three rotating wheels. And then the other one, uh, Hang Time. Hang, hang and Tough? Hang and Tough. Yeah, like the New Kids on the Block song. Um, which Hanging Tough was like a modified Kong. So instead of being, you know, 20 feet off the ground like Kong is, Hang and Tough was like normal rig height. And it was ring, ring, Bungee cords, ring, ring. So, um, uh, bungee cords throw a lot of people off. Those yeah, are, you know that. Yeah, you know, I work out at an obstacle, uh, a ninja obstacle gym, and a lot of people have hard time. It, you know, pro tip: grab as high as possible when you yep. deal with a bungee on there. And I'm sure you probably knew that, Evan. Yeah, I mean, we figured that out real quick. Um, yeah, grab super high, and I like. I like to match hands on everything, so I do two hands. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm, if you heard some coughing in the background, I'm. it's like a one-week post-World's Toughest, and I'm sick, just like I am every year after the race. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I like to match hands on everything. So I do two hands per hold on every hold. And, um, you know, for Hanging Tough and for Kong and for stuff like the Conquer the Gauntlet Rig where the holds are farther apart, I actually pull back on whatever my last hold is and use the momentum to make it to the next one. Yeah, so. you ha you have to. That's the only way you cannot double grip. If you do double grip, it's in the middle of the transition for just a brief second on the CPG Tarzan rig, right? So I double I double grip on uh, Tarzan too. Oh, I do. Okay, I, oh, okay, nice. I overlap, so they they have like basically balls or nunchucks and uh, uh, eggs bowling pins. So. Bowling pin. So I, I grab the hold and then I take my other hand and put it on top of my other hand. So I have two hands on the hold, 
and then I basically switch directions, right? So I'm I'm leading with my right at first, and then when I as soon as I double grab, I am leading with my left, and then I'm back to leading with my right. Because those are, those are quick transitions. He makes it sound yeah. like those aren't quick, but those are very quick transitions because there's zero room for error on, in the CTG rig. Um, so let me ask you guys, it, it, wait, first of all, before I go on to the next question, is that all the new obstacles that debuted? There is one last one, which I think was the reason why we did so well. It's called Ropadope. Um, oh, yeah. I totally forgot about that. So Ropadope, both of us got every time, but um, in talking to people afterwards, they it was sometimes the hardest obstacle for some people. Um, essentially, you had um, just a normal wooden platform, and then maybe four feet out, five feet out, enough so you couldn't reach it just by reaching out. You had a static rope that was hanging in water. Um, and the, an equal distance past that rope was the platform you had to get to. So if you were super awesome, you could jump across, grab the rope, and then swing to the other side. Um, if you're doing 24 hours, there's no way that's going to happen, um, even once. Um, the technique for doing it was you needed to jump out, grab the rope, and then climb to the top of the rope. And the rope had a diagonal, um, essentially, zip line from the top to um, the other side. So once you got to the top, you would need to transition from the straight up and down rope to that diagonal down rope by so, moving So your a hands rope and... to a Tyrolean traverse. Exactly. Yeah, um, except the Tyrolean traverse is going downhill instead of straight across. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and slide down. We got that every single time, the whole day. Oh wow! Nice, nice kill. We got we got across, and I was I thought that was the hardest obstacle on the course, and you know like when Wesley started having trouble on some of the other ones, I was like, man, I hope he starts failing this one because I'm fucking I am tired of doing it. But he just kept getting it, and I was like, oh, come on! <laughs> I was like, pass one of the other ones. I don't like this one. So, um, oh, that's awesome. But, so then, but yeah, and that one had a long penalty the, too. The course changed at some point. Did they change it at midnight? Yeah. How did Wes, can you tell us how they changed the course? So the special part about World Stuff is Mudder in Vegas is that there is a 37 to now 40-foot cliff jump um, that is a major part of the course. And um, that this year opened at midnight because they don't ever have it open the whole time. They want you to, like, get comfortable and then be scared. Um, I all think for maybe safety. Um but once that cliff opens, you jump off the 40-foot cliff, and hey, there's some running distance that you are no longer running. So what they did was they cut off maybe like a half mile for doing, doing the cliff, and they added the cliff, and then two other water obstacles, and a pretty big hill climb with an obstacle at the top, and then a hill descent. So I think they took away maybe a half mile and added maybe a mile of course, including four total obstacle new obstacles at midnight. Um, so bringing each, bringing one whole lap to about what distance? Um, they claim that it's fo- still five official miles. I think they moved like a five and a quarter lap to maybe like five and three quarters or six mile lap. Um, but of course, they will never um, endorse that. Right, right, but you have it on your Garmin. 
Like it make those little those incremental changes in a twenty four hour event make a huge difference over a period of time, right? Yeah. Um I did not wear my Garmin for all of it and we didn't do a penalty free lap after midnight. So I didn't ever get the final distance of that last lap. Gotcha. And I typically I typically turn my Garmin just into a stopwatch at some point just because the batteries won't last all 24 hours. So um, and really, you know, I'm a little less concerned about my mile splits and a little more concerned about my lap time overall. Oh, gotcha. So you so you weren't trying to run negative splits at midnight, Evan? No, I mean, so I can do even or slightly negative on an eight hour. I can't do even and neg- or negative on a 24 hour. Um, Part of it has to do with obviously the length of the race, and the other part it has to do with putting on a wetsuit. So I go from running in essentially no clothes during nice weather into running with a wetsuit, which when it gets wet, you know that's five, ten pounds on top of what what you're normally carrying. So it's if you can negative split a world toughest mother, I give you I give you a ton of credit. That, I mean that's very impressive. So wow, and that's coming that's coming from second place. That's a huge. That's a huge, uh, a huge thing to say from guys so talented. Yeah, yeah you, you know, speaking of when you guys mentioned the clip, I always immediately started thinking of Lindsay Webster. She's easily one of she's easily one of the best female athletes in OCR, if not the best, right? And and you see her do world's toughest mutter with her husband Ryan Atkins every year, and she gets the clip, and she just freezes in fear. It is just by far her nemesis and uh we gotta gotta get her on to interview her and talk her more about overcoming that mental block was there anything were there any other people any other particular obstacles where you saw people just completely freeze and really have to face their demons so one of the new ones i guess it's not really new it's called previously it's been called dark lightning uh this year it was called pandora's box essentially it's a low crawl in like an inch of water, and then there's chains hanging down, and there's also electrical wires hanging down. Oh, sweet. So, so like the initial look at it, you're like, oh, you have to go through the complete darkness, and you're going to get shocked in the face. Uh, but when we actually got in there, one, there was enough ambient light coming in through like the holes in the side that you could see where you were going. And then two, you could actually avoid the electricity wires. So, you know, out of the 16 laps we did... I think Wesley got shocked once, and I I never got completely shocked, but at one point I felt the current. I'm not sure if it was touching something I touched or if it was going through the water, but um, like I, I could feel like the a little buzz, but I uh, never got a full shock. What happened is someone else got shocked while he was in the same water, so he got to share in their joy. Ah, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, they have some, they're super creative in their obstacle creation. I love that... Uh, I know not all race brands can afford to have their own department dedicated to building new obstacles every year, but good on Tough Mudder. I mean, that's why you have to be one of the most competitive and the largest. Uh, if you're going to compete, you know, you see Spartan and Tough Mudder go back and back, forth and forth. They have to have their own dedicated teams like that to creating new obstacles. And that's imperative to uh, to bringing, making a race that people want to try every year you can't. People can't keep doing the same obstacles over and over. They want to see uh, new obstacles every year. That is a big selling point. And quite frankly, for most of us who don't like running a whole lot but love the obstacles, it's the main reason we're out there, right, Evan? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I love running anyway, and I love obstacles. So, you know, when I found OCR, it was the perfect sport, right? Because I got tired of going to running races and losing to people who can't do a pull-up. And I got tired of going to like, you know, lifting or, you know, bodybuilding type stuff where people can't run around the block. So (laughs) I was already training like that for like a decade. And I just happened to find the sport or the sport came to being right around the time that I was in, you know, had built up a very strong strength and endurance base. So Wes, take us here through the night. As you're getting through the toughest part, um, you know, guys, like what's, what's kind of, how are you fueling? What's going through your head? How did the rest of the night till sunrise come up? Because I imagine when the sun comes up, everyone gets a uh, second wind and a renewed amount of energy and it starts heating up again. But take me through the night, fueling and everything, Wes. So our strategy was and the next lap that includes midnight, we needed to switch into full wetsuits because the cliff's going to be a full submersion. Um, and we had two more swims. Um, so we're getting almost completely wet and there's no way that we could ever maintain our body temperature by being naked in that. So it was full wetsuit. So once we switched to full wetsuit, um, Evan was like, we're not like, there's not a lot of run in my legs anymore. So <laughs> that's, actually, that's actually the exact quote. <laughs> um, so we are like, okay. Um, and we, what do you say to that? that? <laughs> um, I was surprised. Because I was thinking that we were actually going to be doing a little bit more running at the second half, because that's that's what I do. Um, This is so 2014, which is the first year I actually I started doing well in these things. um, I ran so switched into a wetsuit like four laps in, and then I proceeded to run within a minute of the same lap in a wetsuit the entire time. So I run even paces, and then. When he was like, hey, we need to slow down, I'm like, okay, this is fine. We can do this, and we'll see what happens. Um, so being a part of a team, I'm like, I would rather be part of a team and just trudge him forward than split up and be like, hey, I know I can run faster than this. Um, and that was a wonderful idea on his part, because once midnight came around, it was like all this water was crushing your soul. Like, Everything got so much harder, and they how they positioned the obstacles that there was a uh, a water obstacle Shawshanked right before three grip-intensive obstacles. And if you failed the first grip-intensive obstacle, you had another water obstacle. So essentially, once we started failing, it was my hands were getting gigantic, and we were failing through that entire gauntlet, um, and the walking was necessary for survival um so at that like 10 after that mark um was like 50 miles and first place the german team passed us right as we were slowing down and we're like we'll let them go whatever we're tired and then as we were getting later into the night it was we were super demoralized and then it was like okay the sun's gonna come up and as the sun was coming up because we were just trudging through and just doing whatever we could. We're like, there's going to be so many teams that have passed us. We were told, you are still in second, and you are two laps ahead of third. So it was like, we went, we started, we slowed way down. Way down, yeah. And 
everyone else did too. <laughs> yeah. Do you think? Do so, you think had you not heard that, Evan? How do you think that would affect you if you had not known exactly where you were at in the standings? Do you think you would have pushed I mean, a little harder? No, nah, I mean, I, I don't think it doesn't affect my pacing that much. I'm pushing what I can, and whatever my body's going to do, it's going to do. So, um, obviously, when I hear my placement, that usually gives me like a temporary burst of energy, but then I usually level back out to whatever pace I was moving at before. Mm-hmm. Now, I know Wesley makes up. Like he's, he just said, he makes up all of his ground by essentially running people down in the second half of the race. Whereas I make up a lot of my ground is because I can, you know, my pace is slow, but I'm still doing obstacles when no one else is. Um, like in 2014, World's Toughest Mudder, like I still, I was still doing Funky Monkey Revolution. Uh, I'm sorry, it was Funky Monkey 2.0. I still did Funky Monkey 2.0 on my last lap. In 2016, World's Toughest. I failed two obstacles over 90 miles. It was the grappler twice. So that, that's kind of my strength. Um, yeah. And so what how, sort of how, did, how did, on the fueling strategy, guys, when you hit the pit area, about how long were you guys in there? How did that work out? Uh, Wes, you want to comment on that? Um, so we have relatively similar pit strategies. Of We think that every minute you're in the pit is a minute you could be running. So if you run 16 laps and you take a minute in the pit, that's 16 minutes, and that's you could almost do a mile. So we run in, essentially shove fuel in our mouth, um, and go. So that whole time, once we are in a full wetsuit, it's like we can't put on more clothing. So yeah. um, we switched out like a hat, maybe added a windbreaker once. And um, what my strategy is, is I do tailwind. So I have a like two 16 ounce jugs of water each of which has two to three scoops of tailwind in it which is pretty concentrated and i will complex, chug complex carbs right yeah with electrolytes i will chug that um take like a salt pill um and then eat generally beef jerky for a little bit of protein or i started enjoying rice krispie treats during this race just for just a little bit of extra calories and then shoot out out of the pit um and then when we were at the water station which is at two and a half miles um i would take one little um cup of their amino acid like calories stuff and then one cup of free water they had hold on they had cups with bcaas evan they did they did yeah wow that's cool nice i wish more people would start implementing that every once in a while you'll come a uh come to a race where the water station will have electrolytes of some sort, and you see, and I don't, you, you know, rule of thumb when you're running competitively, you don't stop at a water station. But when you see that, sometimes it is hard not to stop and grab that cup real quick, right? So yeah, so I mean, I basically did the same thing. I use Perpetuum, which is carb, fat, protein blend by Hammer Nutrition, when I come through the pit, and I was on liquid fuel for probably the first, definitely over the first twelve hours. I think around sixteen, I started eating some sandwiches too. Um, and then at the midway point, I would have two gels and wash it down with some water, and we just keep on trucking. i got a gross question for you guys. Uh, did you go to the bathroom at any point? Is everyone peeing in the water? Everyone is peeing if, in the water. Oh, so gross. <laughs> if you, wa- so you want to reach your goal, you're peeing in the water. If oh, you want to <laughs> brown bib or you want clean legs, you choose. 
That's a that's sacrifice, man. That's a that's a conver- that's a deep conversation I have to have with myself if I were to compete in something like this. It's uh, like so well, will- you look how Miguel Medina when he teamed up with Hunter McIntyre, they made him poop his, his wetsuit. You know, if you were gonna that's win, terrible. you gotta don't poop don't poop in the water. That's terrible. Please don't poop in the water. Uh, hey, do you uh, want a brown bib or do you want to? <laughs> you want? So, and at that point, just go to go to a porta potty. Go to porta potty, please. Um, so interesting things is that um, something that's part of a twenty-four hour, um, which um, Evan and I um, fig- figured out to do, is you want to avoid pooping during the race. Um, and to my knowledge, I don't think either of us pooped during the race. Um, and how you, no. <laughs> how you accomplish that is uh, for the two or three days before the race. As much as you're excited about eating stuff and getting ready for the race, um, you eat what's called a low-residue diet or a low-fiber diet so that you don't have as much poop in you. Uh, and then you don't need to poop in your wetsuit. Um, I have pooped in my wetsuit on previous years, and it gets very unpleasant very quickly. Um, there's some very, very crazy chafing that um, goes on. So, so I just eat normal, and then the morning of the race, I think about pooping a lot, and I usually do twice before the race starts. And then I consume mostly liquids during the race, so um, that helps. And then on that, like I just normally don't have to poop when I run. I've only pooped once during a run slash race, and that was at Toughest Mudder Atlanta, and it was because it was a midnight start, and I wasn't like I ate like a normal dinner beforehand so there was still a lot of like you know the day's food was still in my system yeah you, um, you had a great strategy towards the fueling when you and me did the terrain 24 relay i didn't have to poop the entire time either that worked well, out i pooped really i pooped during that one I, a couple times oh did it not not, the, not the, me not one time maybe just because i hate porta potties it's really gross the stop and start was it was getting to me <laughs> i pooped like three times during that it was bad Oh man, I've not ta- pleasant. I've, I've driven I've driven your Lexus of a podcast off a cliff. <laughs> it's now a jalopy. Congratulations! <laughs> so, so well, let's let's ring it in. We're coming up on, on time here. So, you guys, you get that second you get that second win. Uh, your strategy worked real well throughout the night. Take me through the morning time up until the finish time. Uh, Wes, you wanna you wanna cover that? How did everything pan out? So, um, once the sun came up um, and we knew where we were, um, our laps started getting super a lot faster because I believe that endurance runners are like plants and we are fueled by the sun. Um, so we just kept on with the same strategy of just trying to trudge forward. Um, I would try to get a little bit ahead of Evan. Um, before we hit some of the harder obstacles, and I would try to get over them first to show that I could get over them so that he could just focus on running. Because the instant he gets to it, he's getting over it as long as I've gotten over it. But if I fail an obstacle, um, I do it, and I make it so he knows um, so that um, I have a little bit of rest before the obstacle and then try it, and then if I fail, he can just fail quickly and we can just keep on going. So we kept on doing that. I think the last couple laps, which we only had like two laps after sunrise, um, I want to say I failed all three of the the final grip gauntlet. So it was just penalty, penalty, penalty. Um, and then I think the once we hit 70 miles, um, 
we were we were told the team behind us was speeding up. So we were doing like two hour, two hour twenty minute laps, and we were told that they were doing a one forty two lap, and they were an unknown distance behind us. So we got a little bit of uh, pep in our step to try to keep that up. Um, and then when we hit seventy five. Um, we were told that the Germans were maybe like two miles ahead of us, so we had a chance of catching them. And we had no idea where third and fourth were, and they still were going faster than us. And third and fourth were like ten minutes ahead, behind, uh, next to each other, so they were pushing each other. So we went out for a, a last 80th uh, lap, which was super hard. Um, when we got around to Everest, which is one of the obstacles that requires a lot of energy. It's a quarter pipe that you have to run up and then get yourself over a ledge. Um, I had a bunch of friends that were at the top of that and they helped us get up that, which was um, money. <laughs> Cause it, yeah, shout out shout out to Maddie Gregg and Team Rubicon. Yes. Um, and then we just trudged it through the, the whole way. In that lap, um, usually I would gap um, Evan at like mile three checkpoint, I would have to wait for him for, like, maybe, like, 30 seconds. Um, this one, I started having to wait for him a, a little bit more, because he was um, he was going down, just as much as my obstacles would be like, there's no way in hell I'm going to make this. His running was getting a little bit slow. Um, and then when we came around to the cliff uh, that last time, he's like, "There's I, I cannot, cannot do an 85th. I cannot do an 85th. How, how, how far in advance was first place at this point? We didn't know. No one ever told you? No one ever told us. Gotcha. Um, so we went over the cliff, um, and we came in together, and we're very excited for our um, 80th lap, uh, 80th mile, um, and we asked where first place was. And first place apparently had been fighting because they were worried that we were going to go out on an 85th mile lap. Um, and if we went out on 85th mile lap and completed that, we would beat them if they had only stopped at 80th. So we came in with enough time that they got scared of us, um, and went out for an 85th mile lap, um, after like resting for like a half hour in like nice warm, uh, sleeping bags. Um, and they ended up completing that 85th lap. Um, when we asked about third and fourth, uh, apparently, third and fourth had stopped at 70 miles and had not gone on to 75. So we had. Um, You're locked in for the podium. Yeah, um, we were a good distance in front of third and fourth, and we had been close enough to first to make them scared, which was nice. So let me ask you this. Uh, let me ask you both this question. Let's start with you, Evan. What would you do differently if you go back in time? I mean, honestly, I wouldn't do anything differently. The, I mean, I guess if you really want to get differently, like work on my running more so I could keep up with Wesley. But I mean, <laughs> it's not like it's not like I wasn't it's not like I wasn't working on my running all year. You know, I mean that, you know, that's such a big part of what we do. Um, I'm I'm not sandbagging. I'm trying the best I can. Um, I I think our strategy played out great. Sure, if. And I, I'm not saying this, there's no negative or any bad feelings behind this, but like if me and Resley were running it as individuals, we would have gotten 85, maybe 90 miles each. Um, because, you know, th those first 
50, 60 miles were great, but then, like I said, our differences really started showing where, you know, I was holding him back on the runs and he was holding me back on the obstacles. Um, am I still glad we teamed up? Absolutely. I mean, that's not even a question, right? Like, no, you we guys were on an the amazing team. We were on the podium of the largest and most important ultra OCR in the world, right? It, like, you can't take that away. And like I said, the money, the fact that there was no prize money doesn't even matter. Because you can't take that feeling and the, of that of us crossing the finish line and us standing on that stage on at Monday's brunch away, um, and then on top of that, what was kind of funny is the prizes were actually pretty good. Like we got a thousand dollar gift card each from Merrill, and then we got essentially a Holy Grail pass, so free entry to World's Toughest, free entry to a toughest event, and free entry to a tougher. So that right there is a thousand plus dollars in you know value of prizes. So, I mean, total, we had $2,000-plus in valued prizes. Yeah. Um, you and me have talked about this before, Evan. You and me, like, there are some people that they are very small, few handful of people that make a living of being an OCR athlete. But for you and me, it's about chasing a passion and finding a better us. We could care less about the money. I'm 100% with you. And you got to love that dedication, man. That's what OCR is about. Everyone's out there trying to beat themselves. That's why we're all so supportive of each other. You want to, Yeah, you want to get first place, you want to get second place, and winning that money is great, but it's about more than that. It's about so much more than money. All over OCR, you get to know these athletes. I could go on and on about that. Wes, let me ask you, what, what, what would you have done differently, sir? So I, I can't agree with Evan more. Of, I think both of us would have gotten 85 or 90 had we done separately. But the challenge of being together and working together and sort of being in sync with someone of you are accountable to someone else is a special type of challenge that neither of us had done before and was super interesting and super empowering to do. Because it's like, this guy has literally done everything that I did and he's still trucking forward, so I got to truck forward. Um, in terms of things I would do differently, um, I think... The main reason why I was failing a lot of things, because in 2016, I only failed two obstacles. I failed Kong once, and I failed Funky Monkey once. Um, but in 2016, I did Wetsuit. I had also, knowing that I was running with Evan, started doing a lot of CrossFit since, like, June. So I've gotten a little top-heavy. Uh, and being a little top-heavy in my same 3 mil wetsuit made it very constrictive. And I think that's probably why my hands blew up. So I either would have gotten a new wetsuit, which is something I'm going to do this year, um, or cut the arms of the wetsuit so um, the the blood could drain from my hands. And that probably would have given me a lot more chances to complete obstacles. Probably not as much as Evan, but I think we would have taken a lot fewer penalties there. Yeah, I've, I've taken a recent fascination to how sleeves, say compression sleeves, and water, especially cold water like what you guys were going through in the middle of the night, is going to affect your grip and hands. I feel like there hasn't been a, a solid study on that yet, but from myself competing in the last Ultra Beast here in Dallas and having worn compression sleeves and going through water, and it was 34 degrees outside, it was uh, freezing. I felt a difference once I took off the sleeves. Uh, so there's definitely something to be thought of there in a strategy. You just watch as th this sport is still 
growing. We're still at the bottom level of it as it's growing. So strategy is coming out, and the more research is being done, I can guarantee we're going to have even tighter strategies uh, coming as the sport evolves. But uh, I just want to say congratulations to both of you guys. You had an amazing team. What an, what an amazing feat to do that 80 miles, and you guys took second place like Evan's talking about and you know, one of OCR's largest events and uh, one of the most prestigious for most people, uh, for a lot of people, it's their A race. And it hands out also the most amount of money. It's only attracting more and more top-level athletes as it grows. Uh, is there anything else you guys would like to add in, Evan, before we go? Uh, first, obviously, if, I, if it hasn't come across, obviously, enough. One, thank you, Wesley, for suggesting this. Such a great idea. Um, definitely thank you to uh, Tough Mudder. And, you know, they, they put on a great event every year, and this year was no different. I know we, we criticized them a little bit in the beginning of the episode, but, you know, that all that's from a place of love. Uh, still the best ultra OCR in the world, hands down, by far. Um, they, again, they've just done an epic job this season. Hey, hey so far, a- until OCR, uh, OCR 24 in Australia, we'll see how that compares. I'm excited to see how that compares up to uh, World's Toughest Mudder, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, I said it on one of my Facebook posts, but sometimes I make rules for myself and I really have like no intention of seeing the far side of those rules. And one of them was, so they do this Monday brunch, this champions brunch every year, and you can buy your tickets and go. And at some point, you know, when they started doing it, I was like, all right, I'll go if I'm invited to go as, as in I earn a place. So, uh, this year we earned a place and I actually got to go to the champions brunch, which was awesome. I'm such a glad, such, such a glad, so glad I had that experience. Cause not only do they honor the, it's not, it's like a third award ceremony, a third, like here's what's coming next year from tough mutter. And then like the middle third was actually focused on the world's toughest mutter community. So tough mutter, you know, there's this, this online community in Facebook, it's called world's toughest mutter community, right? It's not an official representation of tough mutter. Uh, they don't, again, there's no actual linkage there, but the company actually honors people from the community, like Joe Perry, who's done all these events, and a couple of volunteers, uh, Francis, uh, one of the guys who always carries, carries around Santa at, at these events. They honor all these people who you know are not employees of the company, are not officially linked in any way. And I just thought that was really cool. Like a, you know, the biggest OCR company in the world doesn't have to reach down and support its uh, fans like that. So that was cool. Um, I got to experience that. Oh, Evan, let and me then, ask you this real quick. How much better did that food taste knowing you earned it instead of buying it? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, no, it was, it was phenomenal. I mean, th- like I crossed the finish line. We crossed the finish line and I was just in a lot of pain and, um, pretty happy to be done, and I mean, I was enjoying oh, I it, but like, <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed it on Monday. That's when I really enjoyed it. What's funny is when you look at the pictures, there's a video of me and Wesley cross the line, and we look terrible. <laughs> yeah. Like I cross yeah, the line, the and I look guys, at my face, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> so. We look like dazed and confused. Yeah. Yeah. So the the other rule I made for myself, so I. It, in my office, I have uh, award shelves, right? So I have three shelves, um, one's for first place, one's for second, one's for third, and then I have a like a, it's a, I can't remember what you call it, some something you hang your curtains on, right? Um, for fourth through tenth place. And whenever I finish a race, 
in one of those places, I put the metal in the appropriate area. And I made a rule for myself that, like, you know, like a top 15 finish at World's Toughest is way more impressive than a third-place finish at Warrior Dash. But I still am not, you know, I, I still stick to that rule. Um, so, at you know, on Monday when we got, or Tuesday when we got back, I added my World's Toughest bibs to my second-place shelf, which I never thought I would see um, hanging from that shelf. So just something, you know, personally... I, I just love that. I think it's I think it's super cool. So nice. All right, I'm done running my mouth. Someone else. Cool. And Wes, um, you? Um, I think um, as you heard, we're Team Merrill, um, and that was an idea of ours. To um, Merrill is the main uh, gear sponsor of Tough Mudder, so we approached them to see if they want to support us, um, and they were absolutely amazing. With they gave us. The gear we wanted, they were like, hey, to make this happen, we want to make sure that our stuff is good for you. So we tried different types of shoes and figured out what were the shoes for, for us. Um, I was wearing uh, Peak Agility Flexes the whole time, um, which are pretty good trail shoes, and they have a decent amount of heels with them. Um, Evan was wearing some minimalist stuff from them that I don't understand how you can run 80 miles in that. <laughs> I was wearing the trail glove. It's like it's like a barefoot running shoe. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a little less cushion than I would normally like for something like this, but I do wear pretty minimalist stuff. And my logic is, if I'm carrying less weight on my feet, that's less energy I need to use to pick up my foot. And if it's less fabric, then that's less weight that it gets absorbed when it gets wet. Um, but yeah, I I rocked them out the entire time. And then keep on going, boys. And other than our Marina tights, which um, I'm also a sponsored athlete of Marina tights, um, they provided the rest of our gear, which was absolutely amazing. Their windbreakers and their shirts and everything and their hats were super warm. Um, so thank you to Merrill and Sue Harvey Brown, who's our contact there. A Conquer oh the, my God, Conquer Sue, the Valley Sue, Protein uh, is sponsored by Marina Sports Wear as well, right, Evan? That is, and um, they, they showed a picture of the of. It was like Lindsay, Ryan, uh, I can't remember who the third person, and then it was me and Wesley on their Instagram. Uh-huh. And they're like, great job, Wesley. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> I'm in Marina I'm in Marina shorts in the picture, guys. You advertise for them all the time. You post about it. Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team. So, so that was pretty funny. Yeah. And, and sh- sh- uh, definitely a shout-out to Sue Harvey Brown. She was awesome. Uh, not only treating us as athletes, but just an awesome person. For those of you who don't know, she had another Merrill commitment that weekend. So she ends up flying into Vegas Saturday evening, drives to the course, parks her car, goes to the tent, puts on a wetsuit, and starts running. Wow. And ran the last, like, I don't know, 12 hours of the event. Um, You know, so didn't earn, like, quote-unquote, the black headband you get for 24 hours. But, I mean, she was out there for the worst part of the race. And, you know, flew in, didn't sleep. So she's awesome. Absolutely love her. Um, and also, yeah. she started around the time when we switched the wetsuit. We ran 30 miles at that point. She ran 30 miles from around that time until the finish. So she did just as much as work as we did in that, that end portion. Um, she's an amazing lady. That's an amazing accomplishment. Okay, gentlemen, we're kind of coming up on uh, time here. Thank you for having me back on the show. Thank you for enlightening me to the world of uh, world's toughest mudder and the tough mudder nation. It seems like an amazing group of people, and I look forward to trying a, a race there in the future. 
And if you hey, if you liked uh, if you enjoyed my my banter, I'm also a co-host on the Link Endurance podcast. So give us a listen while we're giving shout-outs. Uh, Evan, are you wanting to wrap it up, bud? Yeah, um, we forgot to mention at the beginning of the episode because we started getting sidetracked. But uh, this episode is brought to you by Merrill. Since we were Team Merrill, and like we talked about some of their shoes, I would definitely check them out. Uh, a lot of great shoe options there. Like Wesley said, you, there, he, there's a more cushion model. Um, they have the All Out Crush, which is like the Tough Mudder branded shoe. And one of the things I really like about them is the lack of insole. So, you know, with my logic, I don't like extra weight on my feet. And having no insole means that's not there's not like a big sponge in there to absorb water. So, you know, the the four models I test ran in, which was the Vapor Glove, the very very minimalist shoe. It's like a it's like wearing a sock. The trail glove, which is what I wore for World Toughest Mudder. The, um, what's the third one? I can't remember the name. Um, I can't remember the third. And then the other, the other one's the All Out Crush. Um, none of them have insoles, but uh, they're all pretty good. Have a decent amount of traction, but not too aggressive lugs. Like, if you have very aggressive lugs on your shoes, I think Everest is a lot harder to get up, up, get up to. Versus, if you just have like a little bit of a little bit of traction on there, you can get by on all the running parts, but then still make it up Everest on your own. Um, and then on top of that, there, you know, that like Wesley said, their hats and jackets and stuff like that were absolutely awesome. The Micro Light Puff Jacket um, that I was wearing all weekend is literally the softest jacket I own, yeah. and I, I don't want to take it off. For everyone I, out there listening, support the brands that support OCR. Other than Ice Bugs, Merrell's is the only. The only maker of shoes that I know, they're going full in on OCR. So su- support the people that support uh, support OCR so we can continue to see this sport grow uh, that we love so much. Cool. And then uh, I think that's about it. If you have not gone to Mud Run Guide and voted for the best of 2017, definitely head over there and let your voice be heard. There's categories for best podcast, best writer, best athlete, best race series, best championship, best photographer, best nutrition product, best training product, all this good stuff. So just make sure you get over there and let your voice heard, let your voice be heard, because you don't want companies that aren't putting in the effort, like um, like Miles just said, that winning these awards. You want them. You want this the companies that really support OCR in general and are really making good products. Because, you know, if we support them, it, it's all cyclical, right? They they support us, we support them. They put more into OCR and their branding, and, it you know, it comes back around. So, lastly, I, I, keep, I, we should, I, I wanted to mention this at the beginning. Uh, Wesley is called Dr. Red Tights. If you see him at a Tough Mudder, say hi. He's always in his long red marina tights. Um, he's also apparently the most famous person I know <laughs> because... When we were running, ev- literally everyone we passed said hi to him. Everyone. They're like, hey, Wesley. And I'm like running behind them. I'm like, I'm here too. It's cool. Just <laughs> running by myself. Of my chopped liver? Yeah. Like if you – if anyone listened to uh, stories from Ryan and John Albin from last year, that that's what it was like except for us. So last year, everyone was like, hey, Ryan. And then like John was just running like, okay, I, I'm here too. And, like no one said hi to him. That's what it was like running with Wesley. And what's funny is, like, normally a lot of people say hi to me, but I was, like, somehow completely overshadowed. Yeah, I call, uh, I call for, you Mr. Oh, content. 
Evan, Mr. Content Preparist, because, <laughs> dude, you do the podcast, and then you write – I don't even know how many articles you write, but you write a metric crap ton of articles, <laughs> and they're all fantastic, like really well-written articles. I don't know how you get the time, but everyone knows you in OCR. I don't know how you did a lap without people calling you out. Uh, what I think is that I'm from the West Coast, so I've run Vegas uh, many years, so Worlds is in my backyard. Uh, so a lot of people know me from that. Um, also, a metric ton is 96 Mud Run Guide articles, by the way. Yeah, I'm, at, I'm over 100 Crap. now. I'm... And that doesn't include my strength and speed ones. It doesn't include... Uh, I've had a couple articles in Milo from Iron Mind Strength Training Journal and a couple other... A couple of dry robe, I got a couple on there. Um, Metcon magazine, issue number one, I'm in there. So cool. Um, before we go again, Wesley, call Doctor Red Tights. Let's list off all of your degrees real quick, just for the audience. Oh, um, so I have a bachelor's in biological mathematics and biological basis of behavior. I have a ma- uh, a master's in biomathematics. I've got a PhD in biomathematics, and I've got an MD. Yeah. So we're on the course discussing our our degrees, because I have a double major psychology and economics from Johns Hopkins, BA, and then I've got a master's in international relations from uh, KU, uh, University of Kansas. So we're comparing degrees in the course, and, like, one of the guys we're running with is like, are you too serious? Like, you're already better than us at running. you got to be better than us at school, too? We're like, ah. We're just trying to make small talk to pass the time. <laughs> it was pretty funny, though. So, Yeah, that was good fun. Yeah, I felt bad. At least you guys right. graduated. I was a chemistry major, and I, I didn't finish. I feel bad. I don't have a degree now. <laughs> i got to go back and finish and change my major. Uh, all right, last shout-outs before we actually go. Anyone? Miles? Uh, uh, give the Link Endurance podcast to listen to. I co-host that podcast with my co-host, uh... Mo Brosset, and uh, thank you for having me back on, dude. I love I love have talking OCR with you because we usually just interview people and try and get to know their like hearts and minds, and it's a different approach. And you and me really go deep into everything going on in OCR and all the other aspects of it, man. I just absolutely love it. Wesley, any any last shoutouts? Uh, last shoutouts I have is if you're in the SoCal area, you like endurance stuff, you should check out Sisu. Um, they're a great group of people. They have a lot of fun. Um, and oh god, do they work you really hard? Um, the Iron is a life-changing event. Um, I, if you want more about that, you can talk to me about that. Um, and then other sponsors I have: Trail Toes, um, Health Warrior, um, and Tail, and that's it. And Wesley, give us uh, what's your Instagram and Facebook if anyone wants to follow you. Uh, Instagram is Doctor Red Tights, um, D R Red Tights, um, and Facebook is just Wesley Kerr. Um, also, Dr. Red Tights training because I coach people. Right on. Well, th- thanks again for having uh, for both of you coming on the podcast. It was great. Hopefully, we learned a little bit about Toughest Motor, World's Toughest, and uh, it was fun recounting our, our weekend adventure. So we will see all of you next week. That's it from Strength and Speed. Peace.